like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the Old Testament, and when you get there, if you open it about halfway up, you should be somewhere close to the vicinity where we are going to be spending the next number of Sundays in the book of Jonah. If you find the book of Daniel, you're on the good path, you're on the right track. And after Daniel comes Hosea, and after Hosea comes the little book of Joel, and after Joel comes the mighty prophet Amos, and after Amos comes the very brief message from Obadiah, and after Obadiah comes the message of mercy that God wants to deliver through this incredible book and this prophet named Jonah. As we embark on this trip together through this little book, there are 48 verses that make up the entire book. They are arranged in four beautiful chapters that are artfully designed. In other words, this is magnificent literature. When when you read the book of Jonah and you start putting all of the pieces together and you see how God wove the story through the pen of Jonah, it is artful and it is beautiful. It is, it is an artfully designed piece of literature, biblical literature, that is stunning. It is carefully and thoughtfully constructed. We've all had times when we've just thrown something together because we had a deadline coming and it wasn't our best work or we, we were assigned a task and we threw something together and, uh, and then the people receiving it on the other end realized somebody just kind of threw this together and uh, maybe gave it a lick and a promise and it wasn't really well done and it was just kind of thrown in play. That is not what God did with Jonah. This is artfully designed and carefully constructed and thoughtfully intended to communicate theologically profound ideas about God, about Jonah, about sinners, and about us. So at the end of the day, as we look at this book, uh, it's an amazing story. It comes right in the middle of terrain in our Bibles that can be somewhat daunting and is generally unfamiliar. We typically don't hear messages out of the minor prophets. This is a section in our Bible where we meet 12 men who collectively come to Israel and they come both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and they are going to reiterate some of the same ideas that are found in the larger prophets or the major prophets, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. These 12 books are not called minor because they are less theological or they are less important. They are called minor because they are shorter. But their messages are very, very profound. And taken collectively, these men are calling Israel in the north and Judah in the south to remember. Remember God's covenant. And they are calling God's people to repent, to return. They are summing up that very familiar text that Solomon wrote when he talked about humbling themselves before the Lord and coming before the Lord in prayer and seeking God's face and turning from their wicked ways. And these 12 men throughout 800 years of history 
in the north and southern kingdoms are going to come and they're going to seize on that idea and they're going to say to Israel and they're going to say to us, remember God. Repent of your sins. Return to the Lord. And when you do this, you will find gracious mercy, abundantly so. And that really is the history of Israel. Israel is a story that is replete with abundant and sometimes stunning expressions of God's grace and undeserved mercy. And Jonah is right in the middle of all of that. Now, you'll notice the QR code up on the screen that is uh, designed to take you to a full uh, expression of uh, what we're going to be talking about every Sunday. It is not the sermon, but it is a full expression of everything that we're going to say. So if you want to go deeper than just what you hear on Sunday morning, that QR code is designed to help you. And so let's look at the title slide, if you don't mind. Let me have you advance one. This is a series that is going to focus in on God's scandalous mercy as it is told through the life of Jonah. Normally, when we see some expression of mercy or some unusual expression of grace, it is an occasion for great joy. Often it's an occasion for joy in the life of the person watching or the, or the person giving that mercy, but it, it's often and, and usually a great uh, expression of joy and gratitude in the person receiving that mercy. And that is what we would expect to read in a book that is going to focus carefully on the idea of sovereign mercy. However, these chapters tell a very different story. They tell the story of a faithful servant of God who was scandalized at God's grace and offended at God's mercy. How can you be scandalized by grace and how can you be offended by God's mercy? This is a a, a theological conundrum that, that the book of Jonah puts front and center. How can God's servant who understands God, who knows God, whose whole ministry is based on the fact that God said in Exodus chapter 34 that he was a God of mercy. How could somebody called by that God and who has served that God and who has announced that mercy to others, how could he be scandalized by grace and how could he be offended by God's mercy? However, before we judge Jonah too harshly, if we examine our own hearts, we might find ourselves in the boat next to Jonah, on our own boat ride away from somewhere or someone that God desires to extend mercy to that we wish he wouldn't. And that really is the heart of the book. The heart of the book of Jonah is found at the bottom of the sea coming out of the mouth of Jonah the prophet in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. And that's our second slide, so let me have you advance that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And what that means is this. God is saying to us, deliverance, mercy, grace, salvation is my sovereign prerogative. It belongs to me, Jonah. It doesn't belong to you. 
and I can extend it, and I have extended it, and I will extended it, extend it to anybody, and I will give it wherever and wherever and however I choose. There's an ocean of theology in that verse. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's begin with the question that is central to the book. And if I could sum up the question in this way, the question would be this. Is God just when he grants mercy to the most wicked sinners on earth? Is God just when he grants mercy to the most wicked sinners on earth? We could ask it another way. Are there people who should not receive the mercy of God if they respond appropriately to God? Are there people whose wickedness has been so atrocious and the impact of that wickedness so devastating that they really are not the proper objects of God's mercy? Even if they come and meet God's expectation and come asking for that mercy, are there people anywhere on the planet that should not receive God's mercy. Now, before you answer that question too quickly, let me tell you the story of a man, a sunflower, and a dying soldier. The man on the screen is Simon Wiesenthal. Now, you might know a little bit about his story. Simon Wiesenthal was an Austrian Jew who lived through the horrors of imprisonment in a Nazi concentration camp. He lost 89 family members to the ovens in those concentration camps. So this is a man who was deeply scarred. One day while he was on a work detail at the camp where he was, uh, was being held, he was taken out to the Eastern Front and given some very, very brutal tasks. And on the way home, on the way back to the camp, the ragged column of men he was with marched by a field that had been filled up with graves from German soldiers who had been killed in battle. Someone had placed a sunflower on the top of each one of the graves. Simon later wrote about this in uh, the book that he wrote called The Sunflower, and it's subtitled, Exploring the Possibility and Limit of Forgiveness. It's a stunning book, actually. Here's what he said about that moment that he walked by that field, he said, I envied the dead soldiers. Each soldier had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness and no butterfly would ever dance above my dreadful One day, he was pulled out of a work detail and he was taken into a dimly lit hospital room and placed in a chair near the bed. In the bed was a severely wounded Nazi SS officer named Carl. His face was wrapped in bandages with just openings for his eyes, his nose, his ears. And in a barely audible voice, the dying Nazi officer made a confession to Wiesenthal. He told of a terrible atrocity he had committed. He was with his SS unit on the Russian front when they came to a small Jewish village 
All 300 people were herded into one building and the building was locked and then set on fire. After setting the house on fire, Carl's unit ringed the building with their uh, weapons and Carl happened to witness a mother and a father and the father was holding a six-year-old son in his arms and they were in the window of the second floor of that burning building. And in utter desperation, the family jumped from the window and Carl and the soldier shot them all on their way down. Hearing this, Wiesenthal tried to leave the room several times as the soldier described what had happened, but every time the officer begged him to stay. And so Wiesenthal asked the officer why he was confessing all of this to him. And the officer said, I don't know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know what I am asking for is too much, but will you forgive me for all of the terrible things I have done? Wiesenthal sat in silence, stunned by what he heard, staring at the floor. And finally, without saying a word, he stood up and he left the room, leaving the soldier unforgiven. He wrote about this, and he sums up this story with this question. Ought I have forgiven him? Should I have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience of the reader of this story just as much as it once challenged my own. You who have just read this sad and tragic story in my life can mentally exchange places with me. And when you do, ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? That's a modern-day story. It's a very painful story. There's no way you and I can ever enter fully into the atrocity that happened and the trauma of that in the life of Simon Wiesenthal and others like him. And so he has the right to look at us and ask that question. Would you, had you been in my place, would you have forgiven that soldier? You say, what does that have to do with the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah is God's answer to that question. Because that is precisely what Jonah is struggling with. And God's answer to that is salvation belongs to me. You and I don't grant forgiveness in the sense that that soldier was asking for. We can, get, we can grant personal forgiveness, but there is no way we can grant the kind of forgiveness that absolves sins. And this is exactly what Jonah is struggling with when God says to him, I want you to go to a people that is more wicked than any other people on the planet. In fact, the book opens with the the recognition that the wickedness of this people was great and it had come up before the Lord. It was so vile and it was so great and it had been going on for so long that it had come before the Lord's presence. And God had decided to send a a prophet. And Jonah knew the minute he got the commission, how it was going to end. In fact, in chapter 4, he says it. I knew 
I knew, I knew the minute you talked to me, I knew it was going to happen. I knew you were going to send me here, and I knew they were going to repent, and I knew that you were going to give them mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a wonderful thing when you need it. But it is a difficult thing when it scandalizes you and it offends you. And so, as we begin our journey, let's start by looking at the surprising setting in which the story takes place. And keep your finger in Jonah chapter 1, but look at 2 Kings chapter 14, and listen as I read that text to you this morning, because this tells us a little bit about Jonah and the context in which the book occurs. This is, this is taking place in a time in Israel's history in the northern kingdom where a king named Jeroboam II was ruling. And what you need to know about Jeroboam is that he was incredibly wicked. And what else you need to know about Jeroboam and the people is that God was incredibly merciful. Listen to the text. He, Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Now, why did he send Jonah to Jeroboam and to the northern kingdom? Because the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for there was none left, bond or free, and there was no one to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. You know what you see here? You see a setting in which covenant people who refuse to repent receive great mercy. Covenant people, Israel, have been sent prophet after prophet after prophet. They willfully and they wantonly sell themselves to idolatry, to immorality, to injustice, regardless of the repeated warnings of God. They rebel against his word. They refuse his warnings. They reject and actually ruthlessly persecute his prophets. And leading all of this rebellion in the north was a king named Jeroboam II. And despite all of this horrific wickedness, God sent a prophet named Jonah to announce to his own people a great mercy. A great mercy. In mercy, God used a horrifically wicked king, Jeroboam, as the instrument that he would use to deliver his own people from the terrible affliction they were experiencing. And all of this is going on from the hand of God when his people are refusing to repent. And I want to make sure you understand this. God did not send mercy to Israel through Jeroboam because all of a sudden Jeroboam listened to Jonah and said, oh, you're right, we're sinning, we need to repent. This mercy and grace did not come to Israel because somehow, listening to Jonah, the nation fell on their knees and repented in the middle of their sinning, in the middle of their willful rebellion against God. God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go there because I want to show mercy to those people. 
And I want you to tell Jeroboam that he is going to extend the borders of the kingdom and he is going to deliver the people from all kinds of trouble and you're going to send them a word of mercy. That is the context of the book of Jonah. That's why I told you at the beginning, Jonah is living in an ocean of mercy. God is giving mercy and grace in abundance to people that Jonah loves, and while he is giving that mercy to them, they are refusing to heed, they are refusing to turn, they are refusing to repent, and God still gives them mercy. Do you realize something? That's the kind of God you serve. Sometimes even in the midst of your worst spiritual moment where you kind of just say in your heart, no, to something God is saying, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pursue you with mercy. I'm going to cover you with grace. And you get up out of that chair where you're sitting or you get out of that church service where God has been speaking to you or you get up from that little meeting you had with somebody that's been talking truth into your life and you're so angry in your heart. And God says, you know what? I'm going to send you mercy. I'm going to send you grace. Isn't that what he told Moses in Exodus 34? I'm a God who gives mercy and shows mercy to thousands. Contrast that to pagan people who eagerly repent. God had sent a prophet named Elijah to a little widow woman who worshipped idols, actually worshipped the very idols that Jezebel brought in Israel in the town of Zarephath. That was Jezebel's home turf. And here's this widow woman who's in in Jezebel's home turf, worshiping Jezebel's idol. And God says to Elijah, I want you to go there. And Elijah gives her a word from the Lord, and she immediately obeys. And it's delivered. And in fact, receives back to life her son from the dead. Fast forward a little bit to Elijah's successor, Elisha, and he gives mercy, immense mercy, to a Syrian general who worships false gods named Naaman, who's a leper. And hearing the word of God, Naaman responds in obedience. Here is a widow, a pagan idolatress, who responds to the word of God. Here is a pagan general, an idolater, who responds to the word of God, and he gets mercy. And here is a nation who knows God, who's received the word of God, who have prophets that have come before them. And they hear the word of God, and they refuse to repent, and they also get mercy. This is a stunning story. This is the setting in which the book happens. And the reason for all of that is that God is sovereign. He is a sovereign Savior. Notice uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, back to what we, uh, where we first turned. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The same sovereign God who sent Elijah with a word of deliverance to the widow of Zarephath. The same God who decided to send Elisha to connect with Naaman to deliver him, had made another decision. He had decided to send a word through his appointed prophet to sinners who had put sin on the global stage. I mean, when you talked about wickedness, the Assyrians were the world champions. 
We're about to watch a Super Bowl today. The Assyrians won the Super Bowl when it came to wickedness. They were the world champs. And God decided to send a prophet named Jonah with a word that would result in mercy. And by the way, centuries later, God would send another prophet who would offer the sign of Jonah to extend mercy to people like you and to people like me. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice, thirdly, there is a struggling servant. Jonah struggles deeply with this. I mean, this is a problem for Jonah. Jonah was a historical prophet. He actually lived. Some people would look at the book of Jonah and say, well, that's just really an artful tale that never really happened. No, Jonah was a historical person. He lived in a real place. He had a real ministry, and he ministered to real people. He lived during the final years of the northern kingdom. After Jeroboam II died, there were maybe, so Jeroboam II reigned all the way up to about 746 BC, and in 722 BC, so some 24 years later, the Syrian army is going to come and they're going to destroy the, the capital city, Samaria, of the north, and they're going to take the entire northern kingdom captive. They're going to deport them. And in 722 BC, that is exactly what happened. And the 10 northern tribes disappeared, and to this day, they have never returned to the land. Here is Jonah, some 60, perhaps 40, depending on how you do the dating, 40 to 60 years before that happens. He knows this is coming because he's a prophet of God and God has been talking about this to his people. He's been giving them mercy, but part of the mercy has been warning. And so here we are. And Jonah knows that this nation is going to come and one day God says to Jonah, Jonah, I, I, I have a task for you. Jonah's a prophet. He's like, yeah, that's great. I'm up for it. I'm your prophet. I'm your man. You know me. I'll tell you. I'll tell the people exactly what you want him to want him to hear. And so where are we going? Are we going up like are we going up to Zebulun's territory? Are we are we going up to Naphtali? Where are we going? And and, and God says to Jonah, well actually we're going a little further than that. Really? Well what what kind of what, what do I need to pack? No, no, just, just, you know, I'll take care of you when we get there. You are going all the way to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing in Nineveh? Well, their wickedness has come up against me, and so I want you to send them a word of warning. Now, you don't know this till chapter 4, because Jonah keeps his mouth zipped in chapter 1. He's like, you, you ever, like, get ticked at somebody and you just, like, you zip your lip? That's what happened. Zona, zona. In chapter 1, when Jonah and God are talking, it's God talking, and Jonah's listening, but he's not. But in chapter 4, he finally, he finally tells us, when he talks to God, what he was thinking way back in chapter 1, he was like, I knew it, because there he is. Nineveh's repented. The whole city's been spared, and Jonah's on a hillside, and he is ripped. I mean, he's ticked. I mean, you can almost see the theological smoke coming out of his ears, his nose, his eyes. He's just sitting on that hillside, 
burning. That's the idea behind the language. He is burning up. Have you ever just said, you know what, I am just burned up about this. Well, Jonah was burned up. And he starts talking to God. I knew it. This is exactly why when we talked the first time, I was not about to go to Nineveh. This is exactly why. I knew this was going to happen. I know you're the kind of God. You give a warning, people give a little repentance, and you give a boatload of mercy. You're like, Jonah, can you not hear yourself? I mean, that's exactly what God's been doing to you and to your people. Israel has been getting a boatload of mercy. I mean, for crying out loud, Jeroboam II, he bowed down to every idol there is. And God sent you to give them a boatload of mercy. Yeah, 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 but those were, those were, that's Israel. That's Israel. This is, um, this is an Israel. This is Assyria, and Assyria, I mean, Israel's wicked, but Assyria is, is actually like the world champion wicked, and so they don't deceive mercy or receive mercy, and they certainly don't deserve it in light of what they know they're going to do. God, how can you do this? And that brings us to the uncomfortable commission that God has given to Moses. And, and this uncomfortable commission is that God has decided to give mercy to somebody that Jonah didn't want God to give mercy to. I mean, Jonah is great when God decides to give mercy to Israel. And Jonah is extraordinarily thankful from the bottom of the ocean when God decides to give mercy to him. But God has decided to give mercy to people that Jonah doesn't think should receive it because of what they're about to do, what they have done and what they're about to do. Assyria was one of the most cruel nations in the ancient world. We don't have time this morning to go into the, the cruelty of this nation, but they were known on the world stage as being cruel. And Jonah knew what they were going to do to his people. You know, there's an interesting tradition. And the tradition is that the little widow woman in Zarephath had a son that Elijah raised from the dead. <clears throat> Jewish tradition believes that that son was Jonah. That Jonah went on and entered into the school of prophets where he was trained by Elijah and later by Elisha. And that Jonah was the unnamed prophet that Elisha sent, sent to anoint Jehu to remove Ahab and Jezebel from Israel. Now, I don't know if that tradition is true or not. The dates actually seem like they could work. But there's a story in Elisha's ministry of God telling Elisha to go and anoint a man named Haziel to be king over Syria. And so Elisha does that, and as he stands before this man, Haziel, he, anoint, he tells him God's word, you're going to be the king, and then he starts weeping. And the man looks at him, Haziel looks at him and says, man of God, why are you weeping? And Elisha says, I'm weeping because I know what you're going to do to God's people. I know you're the one that's going to burn their cities. I know you're the one that's going to put their young men to the sword. And I know you're the one that's going to dash their infants to death. 
But Elisha let God be God. Here is Jonah, and God has designed and, 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 and decided to extend mercy, and Jonah has a theological problem with this. God, how can you show mercy to people who are more wicked than your own people? And by the way, how can you show mercy to people that are going to one day come and be horrifically unmerciful to your people? How can you do that and be just? Where's the justice in that? Where's the righteousness in that? If you're not going to be just and you're not going to be righteous, then I'm going to be just and I'm going to be righteous. If you're not going to care about your people and you're not going to care about your name, then I'm going to care about it and I'm going to be the just one in this and I'm going to be the righteous one and so I'm not going anywhere near Nineveh. This isn't the first time a prophet had a struggle with the Lord. You remember Elijah said, when God said, why are you here? He says, I'm here because I am the only one left. I'm the only one who seems to care about what you should be caring about. I'm the only one who cares about your name. I'm the only one who cares about your honor. This is coming out of Elijah's mouth, and now it's coming out of Jonah's mouth, and sometimes it comes out of my mouth. Sometimes it comes out of yours. When you look at somebody that gets mercy and you think about what they've done to you, they think about what's happened because of what they did to you, the trauma that's come into your life, the trauma that's come into your family. And by the way, please don't minimize that ever. God never minimizes that. Don't you minimize that. We tend to think of Jonah as this fearful, he's, he's terrified of these series, he doesn't want to go there because he's afraid, or he's a national prophet, and he's so nationalistic, he's prejudiced, and we give Jonah this bad rap. Jonah is actually theologically in conflict with God over the very kind of thing that you and I are theologically in conflict with God about all the time. When God chooses to extend mercy to someone we know deserves judgment. And this is why that book on sunflower, the sunflower by Eli Wiesenthal is so powerful because it puts us right in that chair and says to us, now what would you have done? And you know what I would have done? And probably what you would have done? We would have done the same thing. We would have walked up and said, no forgiveness for you. And God says, wait a minute. I want you to take a word of mercy. And that's where the conflict is. And that brings us to the final thing, and that is there is a very sober message or sermon that the book preaches. And it's, in the, it's the, at the very end of the book. It's in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. And it says, do you well to be angry? You know, as we go through Jonah, we're going to have to ask some questions. We're going we're to have to say, am I willing to let God be sovereign? Or am I going to limit God's sovereignty by my own standards of what I believe is just and fair and right? I'm going to have to ask myself, am I internally frustrated with God over something that he has decided to do that affects me or that affects those I love in ways that are uncomfortable or even painful? These are hard questions. We're going to have to ask ourselves, am I justifying some disobedience before God on the grounds that I am doing something righteous that God should be doing? I don't 
I'll trust God to take care of the person I care about or to deal with the injustice, and so I'm going to disobey something God told me, and I'm going to be dishonest. I'm going to be cruel. I'm going to be unforgiving. Whatever it is, name your sin, and you've justified that you're right to disobey God because you don't trust God to do what he told you he would do. And somebody comes along and confronts you. The book of Jonah comes along and confronts you and you get angry in your heart. This is is Jonah. Am I resisting the will of God because his will, what, what I know he wants me to do, is not good and it's not acceptable in my heart. And am I harboring anger toward God because I'm in this spot? I mean, isn't that the truth? And so as we wrap up this morning, let's, let's make three very quick applications. Number one, Jonah teaches us to rest in the omniscient will of God. God is doing more than we know. God said to Abraham, Abraham, through you and your descendants, the entire nations of the world will be blessed. And here's a descendant of Abraham, a prophet named Jonah, who's going to take the blessing of Abraham to people who don't deserve it. Paul told the Romans, the Christians at Rome, that God was going to use the disobedience of his people to extend mercy to you, the Gentiles. Here is a disobedient Hebrew prophet who's about to take mercy and grace to a Gentile disobedient nation. If God can use a disobedient nation and a disobedient prophet to bring grace to people who don't deserve it, what could he do with people who go in obedience? Rest in the wisdom of God. Trust the righteous character of God. That's our second lesson. God's mercy never, ever comes at the expense of his righteousness or in violation of his justice. You say, well, man, it certainly seemed that way. Yeah, but you haven't read the whole story because there would be another prophet like Jonah who would be in a boat sleeping. And when he was awakened, he would speak and the whole storm that was on that little sea would subside. And that prophet greater than Jonah would go to a cross and he would would satisfy the wrath of God. And he would satisfy the justice of God so that you could receive the mercy of God. God's justice and God's character are never violated when he shows mercy. And so that's the third thing. Rejoice in the rich mercy that you have received from God. When you don't understand the work of God, trust his wisdom, obey his word, and do his will. When you finally see everything that our wonderful, merciful Savior is doing, you will be so glad he gave you a part. You know, I, I want to use a little bit of sanctified imagination as we close this morning. Where do you think Jonah is today? We get to chapter 3, we're going to discover, and it's my view that the people in chapter 3 genuinely repented and actually came to be followers of Jonah's God. And so I think Jonah might be in heaven standing right next to some Ninevites going, aren't you glad we have a wonderful, merciful Savior? I think the anger of Jonah on that hill has been dissipated 
for thousands of years has been in the presence of a wonderful, merciful Savior, and he's been rejoicing that God gave mercy to Israel, that God gave mercy to Nineveh, and that God gave mercy to him. And you and I are one day going to be in the presence of God, and we're going to rejoice in that same mercy. So if we're going to rejoice then, let's rejoice now. That's one of the reasons joy should be the mark of someone who understands Jonah's God. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Jews today read the book of Jonah on the Day of Atonement, because the Day of Atonement is where sin was propitiated, the wrath of God was propitiated, and the sin of man was expiated because of the merciful provision of God. And you and I have that today. So we have a great story ahead of us. Let's ask God to help us receive it well. Lord, thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you that we can come and celebrate the wonderful, awesome mercy of God. Thank you that salvation belongs to you. Help us to realize that you can choose who to give that to. You can choose where and how and when to give that. But you do, and you have, and you are. And Lord, we are a room full of people who have received that mercy. And so, Lord, help us never to begrudge it from others. Lord, I'm thankful I don't have to forgive sins because there would be very few sins forgiven. I'm thankful that my sins were forgiven by a God who is unimaginably merciful. And so as we think about the scandalous nature of that mercy, help us not to be offended by it. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.